Good morning, everyone. Thank you for welcoming me into your home again. I uh, am sure you're wondering, where am I? We're still at the church, but I am choosing to sit down today. Um, kind of brings back memories of when I had broken my, or had my knee surgery and taught in a uh, chair when we met at Cairn. So it is biblical to teach from a chair. That's what the first century Jews did. Look it up in Luke chapter 4. Jesus read the scriptures and then sat down and began to teach. So I hope it won't be too distracting for you. But I want to invite you to take your Bibles, if you have one, and turn to Psalm chapter 32. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully um, as you're able to get out, you can buy one or we'll be glad if you email us to mail you one. But we certainly want to engage you in studying the Bible with us together. We're doing a series on the Psalms, and we've called it For Such a Time as This, because we're going through, as Bob mentioned earlier, a number of national uh, tragedies and really worldwide things that cause us to, to step back and go, how do I live as a Christian? How do I respond to these things? And so this morning, we're going to look in Psalm 32. It's a really interesting psalm. I hope that many of you are familiar with it. If you aren't, I hope it'll become one of your favorites. It's often coupled together with Psalm 51. I want to begin by telling a story. My oldest granddaughter, Peyton, is an avid reader, and so I bought her a book about the Pilgrim's Progress, but a children's version. And if you've ever read the story of Pilgrim's Progress, you remember that this pilgrim leaves his city and he has a big bundle of looks like sticks or hay on his back a burden on his back and as he's wandering along and passes through the the wicked gate eventually he comes to the cross and the burden falls off of his back but i determined that as i read it to peyton that i wouldn't explain any of the metaphors any of the the implications because i wanted her to try to figure it out. And I distinctly remember her asking this question. Why did the burden fall off of Pilgrim's back when he stood at the foot of the cross? Now, those of us who are able to, to see the metaphor understand that that burden was his sin and that it fell off at the cross because that's where our sin is ultimately dealt with. As the songwriter said, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. So this particular psalm, I'd like to call it the foundation of a blessed life. The foundation of a blessed life. And a blessed life starts with dealing with our own personal sin. You know, ultimately, all of the problems that we experience in life are in one way or another really related to sin, whether we've been sinned against or the sinful way that we've we respond to that. So most of you who know the story of David in the Bible recognize that the Bible doesn't really paint rosy pictures of everybody, but it's very, very real, very gutsy, very open. And you know that David had a period in his life where he committed adultery, and then he tried to cover it up in such a way that he actually had a man put to death rather than deal with his sin. And probably he lived that way for about nine months and it was a miserable time in his life but he wrote psalm 51 begging god to forgive him 
And in that psalm, he promised the Lord that if the Lord were to forgive him and blot out his transgression, he said he would teach sinners the way and sinners would be converted unto God. And so I'd like to suggest that probably Psalm 32 is a psalm that he wrote keeping that commitment that he made to the Lord. You forgive me, Lord, and I'll teach others how they can experience forgiveness. It's one of the psalms that begins with the word blessed, much like the Beatitudes, you'll remember. It's interesting, Psalm chapter 1 also starts with the concept of blessedness, only Psalm 1 describes the blessedness of someone who's in the word. This psalm describes the blessedness of the penitent sinner who's dealt with his sin and found a new way to live. So if you're with me uh, at this point, I want to invite you to read the first two verses as we look at the blessedness of a full and free forgiveness. Let's read together. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I'd like to begin by just briefly looking at that word transgression. When he talks about transgression being forgiveness or being forgiven, there's, there's over 20 different words in the Bible to describe sin. But this particular word has the concept of a deliberate revolt. To transgress is to revolt against a ruler. And it's used in the Old Testament often in the sense of Israel rebelling against uh, a ruler, but often it's used of rebelling against God. And so this act of rebellion is really when we're overstepping the bounds of God's laws. It's when we're basically saying, I am refusing to obey God. It's, it's a sense of saying, I want to be independent from you, Lord, so I'm no longer going to listen to you. And so David, as he thought about that period in his life when he had rebelled against God, he said, I am so blessed, I am so at peace, I am so full of joy that now this rebellion has been forgiven. Then, he's, then in parallelism, Hebrew parallelism in the poetry often says the same thing in a different way. He says, whose sin is covered. And there's been a lot of discussion about how did God forgive sins in the Old Testament? There was a word that was often used, uh, the Hebrew word kafar, that was used of when the blood was put on the mercy seat, God would cover their sins. And so often it's been said that in the Old Testament, God didn't really forgive sin. He just covered it over. But I, I don't know that that's completely the case. I think it was a complete forgiveness, but it was based on an understanding that of course, the blood and bulls of, of bulls and goats could never fully take away sin. But David's basically saying, wow, it's an enormous blessing to know that my sin has been, literally this idea of covered is hidden. It, 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 it goes out of its way in the Old Testament to talk of how God will remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. It says that he'll cast our sins behind his back. He'll bury them in the depth of the sea. He says in Isaiah, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. And so, I mean, when you think about it, what a, a privilege it is to be able to know that you're forgiven. 
forgiven of revolt. And then David also uses another word. He says, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Now this word means to deviate from the way. It's sometimes translated to be twisted. And it's interesting because this word is not only used of when we are twisted or deviate from the way, but it's also used to show the penalty of what happens when we deviate from the way. So it, in essence, it speaks not only sometimes of the act of sin, but also of the consequences and the effect that it has on us. Sometimes we, we forget just how twisted we are because we, we look at people who are worse than us. I heard a good illustration of this. Imagine if it was popular to be very straight, but we were all sticks. If we were all sticks and you came to a party and you were around a bunch of twisted, gnarly briars and you were a fairly straight stick, you might have a really good feeling about yourself like, wow, I'm the straightest stick around. But then the man, as he shared this, he said, imagine if a ruler came walking in a 12-inch ruler, and you'd look at them and you'd go, wow, I'm a lot more twisted than I thought. So the essence of this first section is basically what a joy it is to have our sins completely forgiven, to have a, a, an awareness that God and I are at peace. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said this, pardoning mercy is of all things in the world most to be prized. It's the only sure way to happiness. To hear from God's own words that you are forgiven is joy unspeakable. And the cool thing about it is that forgiveness of sin is full, it's free, it's instantaneous, it's complete. And as Spurgeon goes on to say, it turns a sinner's hell into heaven. It's what Paul called righteousness without works. When, when, when David says the Lord doesn't count iniquity to us. But I want to mention one other thing that when God forgives us of our sins, he also changes our heart. Look at the end of verse 2. The person who has been forgiven, David says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. The word deceit is usually used in the Old Testament with the tongue. Frequently it's it speaks of a deceitful tongue. In other words, a liar. So, in essence... What David's saying here is, is a person who truly is forgiven, who continues to live the life of a liar, that's a sham. That's not a, a genuine forgiven person. Freedom from guilt is really going to lead to freedom from guile. In fact, in Psalm 51, David said, he said, Lord, you desire truth in the inner man. And so if you come to Christ and, and you've experienced his forgiveness, then it doesn't make sense to think that we would want to continue to live a life of deceitfulness. In fact, it's interesting that I talked recently about how we are taking off our masks. There's no place in the Christian faith for a mask of guile and deceitfulness. But asking God, Lord, it is a blessing to be forgiven. So help me to live without living and, and, and having a secret life a deceitful life. So there we see the blessedness of forgiveness, but now we're going to find in verses 3 through 5 the painfulness of sin and the path to forgiveness. You know, sin is a funny thing. It holds out way more than it can keep its promise. 
I don't want to downplay the fact that sin is fun. If it wasn't fun, nobody would be doing it. In fact, the book of Hebrews describes Moses forsaking the pleasures of sin. But what sin doesn't tell us is that there's going to be disastrous consequences. And so we focus on the pleasure and we don't realize the pain that's going to follow when we have to pay the piper. So I want you to read with me as David describes the experience of painfulness when he didn't choose the pathway of forgiveness. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality drained away as with the fever heat of summer. So I just want you to, 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 to think about this, that if you're a Christian and you revolt and you twist and deviate from the path and you don't deal with that, it's going to be miserable for us. The Bible calls this God's discipline. I used to have a little cartoon that said, I'm kind of afraid to be ruled by a, a group of young people who've never had a spanking and always got a trophy. So Hebrews 12 tells us that God loves all of his children. And when we persist in sin and we refuse to come back to him and ask forgiveness, the Bible says the Lord disciplines his children and no discipline for the moment is joyful but grievous. And so as we're studying this passage together, if you're experiencing what you feel like the heavy hand of God upon you, if you feel a sense of guilt, a sense of God's displeasure, it's worth checking your heart and asking yourself, am I covering my sin? Am I deliberately refusing to listen to God? God doesn't start with, with, with a, a firm spanking. He gently speaks to us. But it's impossible for a Christian to persist in sin and to be happy. It just can't happen. In fact, Spurgeon said, alas for a poor soul when it has learned its sin but forgets its Savior. The Bible says the way of a transgressor is hard. And so it's our job to dig deep and make sure that we, we recognize that, man, this is just stupid to stay in sin. And so David then gives us the pathway to full forgiveness. How did he get this forgiveness? Did, did he go to church? Did he do penance? Did he, did he suddenly join charities and help people? No, it was a, a full and free pardon that came from God. And look at verse 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin to thee. What does that mean to acknowledge your sin to God? He said, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then, you did forgive the guilt of my sin. Confession is really telling on yourself. It's being honest with God. It, it's coming to God and say, God, this is what I did. I want to bring this out into the light. I want to acknowledge it. I don't want to hide it any longer. I'm struggling with guilt, and I, I just want to be forgiven. You know, it kind of reminds me, do you remember back when you were a kid and your mom said, um, don't touch the cookies? 
and you snuck a cookie and she happened to come into the kitchen, the cookie's in your mouth. There's crumbs coming down your cheek. You're, you're, you're looking like a chipmunk and there's a cookie missing and your mom knows you ate it. But she still asks you, hey, did you eat one of those cookies? And the reason for that is she wants you to confess. She wants you to be honest. She wants you to bring your disobedience out into the light. And that's how God rolls. That's, that's how God deals with his children. He doesn't ask us and expect that we'll never make a mistake, but he wants us to quickly repent and to confess our sins. So think of confession as coming to God and saying, Lord, forgive me for my sin, but then tell him what it is. Tell him I, I did this or I did that. And then you experience the path of forgiveness. Now, let's not misunderstand this. The Bible makes it really clear. God isn't mocked. So when my son was a little boy, he wanted some ice cream, and I said, hey, I don't have any money. He said, well, hey, how about if you just use that card that gets money out of the bank? He didn't realize that it wasn't an unlimited tree of money that you can just get as much as you want. This verse is not offering full and free and complete forgiveness to a person who's not ready to repent, to a person who mocks God. So I want to encourage you to remember that in confessing our sins, we we need to be willing and ready to turn from them. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, if you cover your sins, you won't prosper. But if you confess and forsake them, you'll find mercy. And so sometimes forsaking our sin needs to be coupled with some extreme acts like accountability, like sometimes not only confessing to God, but to someone else like changing things in our lives. Jesus illustrated it like this. He said, if your right hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. He's not asking us to cut off our hands. He's simply saying, hey, if if you want to get right with God, be willing to turn from your sin. And then God offers us this full and free pardon from sin. Well, the third thing we want to look at here is now David's going to start teaching us. He's going to start giving us his as he said in Psalm 51, then I'll teach transgressors thy ways. He told us his experience. And, and sometimes listening to somebody's experience is really helpful. Spurgeon once said, that the, the spider spins from his own bowel. So David's not talking about theory. He's going, this is what happened to me. And I want to save that from happening to you. So let's look at verses 6 and 7 because David wants to press home the necessity of taking that path now the pressingness of taking the path to forgiveness now. It's one thing to say, you know, someday I think I'll turn from my sins. I'll trust in the Lord Jesus, and I'll ask God to forgive me. But the problem with that is you may not have that opportunity if you put it off. So look with me in verse 6. David says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they shall not reach him. Now, that, that, that's kind of a, an interesting verse. Wait, wait, you mean if I postpone my repentance, there could come a time of being too late, even in this life? You know, I, I think that's what this is, is teaching that God may give us over to a hardness that may make you not even want to repent. 
So if you're feeling tender in your heart right now and you feel a need to turn from sin and turn to God, this is David's plea. Do it now. In fact, if you want to see another passage that supports this, in Proverbs 1, God says in verse 24, because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand, but you wouldn't pay attention and you neglected my counsel. But then God says this, since you didn't want my reproof, I will mock at your calamity. I will laugh when your dread comes. And then you will call on me, but I won't answer. You will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because you hated knowledge and didn't choose the fear of the Lord. You wouldn't accept my counsel. You spurn my reproof, so you'll eat the fruit of your own way. So I think it's important here that we remind ourselves and our kids and those whom we disciple that when God's convicting you of your sin, it's very pressing and urgent that you deal with it. Don't just go, oh, well, maybe someday I'll change my ways. You'll notice that as David experienced this forgiveness and then he urges others to do it right away, he then says, God, you're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble and you surround me with songs of deliverance. You know, it's a beautiful thing to, to move from having God as your judge to God as your friend, God as your refuge, to have God all around you, God surrounding you, above you, behind you, within you, and to have that melody in your heart that comes from the Holy Spirit where you're just walking along and singing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And it is a blessing. It doesn't mean we're happy all the time. It doesn't mean we don't have any problems. But to know that God's amazing love forgives us completely, it, how can it not bring a song to your heart? But now David has some final instructions in verses 8 through 11. He, he, he's given us the pressingness of why we need to get after it and do it now. But but I want to assume that many of us who are studying have already done that. You, you have already come to Jesus. The burden of your heart has fallen off. You've been forgiven. It may have been five years ago, 50 years ago. Some of you remember the exact day when you gave your life to Christ. Some of you don't really remember for sure, but you just know that you have trusted in Jesus. You know you're a believer. You know you're forgiven. As Pastor Beagle once shared with me a famous uh, quote from one of the divines, he said, you don't have to see the sun come up to know the sun's out. So if you know that you've been forgiven, wow, what a blessing. There's some instruction for you. If you don't know, maybe you've been told by your church, you can't know. I want you to study the Bible because the Bible makes it very clear. You can know and you should know that your sins are forgiven. So David gives two pieces of advice to those of us who have experienced that forgiveness. Number one, submit to God and don't be stubborn. You know that things are wrong. You've asked God to forgive you. He's washed you in the precious blood of Jesus. He's given this full and free grace and pardon. But now, oh, well, I sort of want to do this and I sort of want to do that. It's actually interesting that David now is quoting God and he uses a wonderful illustration urging us not to be stubborn. Verse 8, God says, I will instruct you and teach you 
in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. You know, that, that, that's cool to think that once we're pardoned, we don't just follow after our own lusts. We've been freed from sin so that now I follow after Jesus. And here he's telling me, look, I'm going to lead you, Tom. I'm going to counsel you. I'm going to speak to you. It reminds me of Matthew 11 when Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary. Take my yoke like two oxen. Learn from me. I'm gentle and you'll find rest for your soul. So now that I'm forgiven, I'm looking to the Lord and saying, Lord, how do you want me to live different? What do you want me to do with my time? What do you want me to do with my resources? Well, notice this phrase, I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. You know, that's kind of cool. It's, it's kind of like a nod or a wink. When you really know your spouse, they can kind of just look at you and, and, and give you sort of a sense of, of, of direction. It reminded me of a passage in Isaiah I was looking through, and I found in Isaiah 30, as the Lord predicted his gracious work in the new covenant, he said, he will be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he'll answer you. And even though he had given you privation and oppression, no longer will he hide himself. But your eyes will behold God, your teacher. But then listen to this verse, Isaiah 30, verse 21. Your ears will hear a word behind you, this is the way, walk in it. And, it. and it really is a cool way to describe the Christian life. It's not God piling on us a hundred rules and laws, but he gives us a new heart that desires to obey him. He gives us the Holy Spirit, and then he gives us his word. And he says, Tom, walk with me, and I'll teach you. Let my word be the lamp to your feet and the light to your path. Stay close to me. Now, most of you, have walked a dog and know that some dogs are incredibly stubborn. In fact, for the life of me, I cannot understand how dogs continue to pull against choker collars. We've all seen it. The dog will just pull and pull. And we're like, dude, if you would just stay beside me, it could go so much easier. But that's kind of an illustration of what God's telling us in verse 9. He says in verse 9, don't be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding. In other words, what separates humans from brute beasts is we have the ability to have understanding. He says, when it comes to a horse or a mule, they have a bit and a bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they won't come near to you. It's crazy to think that we should be as obedient to God as the angels. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, like it's being done in heaven. But yet, we so often are prone to wander from the Lord. And then when he gently is drawing us back, we start to resist like a stubborn mule. And so maybe you're at a time in your life where you've, you've felt God luring you and calling you to, to stop something or to start doing something. Learn from this. Don't be stubborn. Let the Lord lead you. Learn to be led by the Spirit. Learn to seek counsel from godly people. There are a lot of things in life that are not black and white, but the principles of Scripture and the Holy Spirit inside of us, God wants to lead us day by day in a path that pleases Him, in a path in which we're growing in grace and we're becoming like Jesus and we're bearing fruit. 
So I, I kind of like the way Spurgeon worded it here. He goes, we ought to be like a feather in the wind, wafted readily in the breath of the Holy Spirit. But instead, sometimes we lay there like a motionless log. We do not care for heaven in view. And yet we have cutting bits of affliction, like, like, like scars in the mouth of a horse, showing how stubborn, hard-mouthed we are. We shouldn't be treated like mules, he said, if there were not so much of the ass about us. And so let's learn from God and say, Lord, help me to walk with you. Well, the second piece of instruction is not just to don't be stubborn, but then in verse 10 and 11, we're to choose the path that leads to joy. Choose the path that leads to joy. There's a really good track that came out several years ago called Two Ways to Live. And you know, everybody has a choice. Do I want to live in faith in my Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood? Do I want to turn and trust him and experience forgiveness and then submit to him and become a, a servant of Christ, a, a slave of righteousness which leads to holiness and fruitfulness? Or do I want to continue to live for myself? Look how verse 10 reads, many are the sorrows of the wicked. You know, being wicked doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing all kinds of disastrously diabolical things. It's wicked to simply ignore God. It's wicked to live a life excluding God, revolting against God, and just doing whatever you want. And you know, it's tempting, especially you young people, you see your friends, you're like, they're out partying and they're sleeping around and maybe you're a middle-aged guy going, yeah, well, my boss left his wife and he's with the other man or he's with a younger woman and he goes on all these vacations. He looks happy. Don't let appearances fool you. The Bible says, even in laughter, the heart can be full of sorrow. And David says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. But in contrast, he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. So what will your choice be? Will you choose the path that leads to joy? Will you choose to surrender and continue to trust the Lord? Which sometimes means I have to turn away from sin. But I'll depend on Jesus who gave me his Holy Spirit. He's going to help me to do all things through him who strengthens me. And then, you know, it's, it's funny. He says in verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. I want you to think about this. To be glad as a Christian is a privilege, but it's also a responsibility. I mean, think about it. How can I not, in some sense, look and, and think to myself, wow, what good would it be to have the whole world and lose my soul? But yet, I am forgiven. Oh, God, thank you. Nothing can separate me from your love. You chose me. You redeemed me. You, you bought me. I'm yours for life. And I have an exciting life ahead as I walk with you and as you teach me and counsel me. How can I not be glad? But, you know, it's a privilege to be glad, but it's also our duty. This is a commandment. The Bible says, rejoice, you righteous ones. You know, some of you may say, well, 
I don't feel like rejoicing, Pastor Tom. I, I, my life is in, 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 there's just a lot of things that I don't like the way things are going. I don't feel like rejoicing. Well, the Bible doesn't offer that as a third option. The Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. And it's not hypocritical to rejoice even though you have problems in your life. It's a choice that we can make. In fact, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.10, sometimes I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Some of you may say, you know, I just never sing Christian songs. I don't feel like it. But God is saying, shout for joy, you righteous ones. And notice, why are we righteous ones? Are we righteous ones because of something we did? No, we're righteous ones because God has pardoned us fully and freely through the gospel. So as we wind down this psalm, we've seen the blessedness of having forgiven sin. We've seen the pain of what happens when you cover it. We've seen the path to how to get forgiven. You simply repent and, and you ask for God's forgiveness and you confess and turn from it. But then we learn that we better do it right away. And finally, we have two pieces of advice. The first piece of advice is don't be stubborn. The second piece is choose the path of joy and rejoicing. So as I close, I'm going to say what I said at the beginning. Our greatest problems in life are usually somehow related to our sin. Is there something in your life that you're being stubborn about? As the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart this morning, is there something you've been wrestling with God? I assure you, you're never going to win. When Paul urged the Corinthians to stop eating at idols' temples, he finally said to them, are you stronger than God? So if God is tapping you and speaking to you and saying, my child, I want you to stop that. I want you to change your ways. Do it now. And then ask yourself, are you, are you allowing the Lord to counsel you with his eye upon you? Are you like a feather, like Spurgeon said, trying to say, Lord, lead me, show me, Or are you like a log or a stubborn mule that God drags along? You know, it's funny. The idea of our sins being forgiven or being taken away is is a burden being removed. And, and, And Jesus bore that burden for us. He said he's the Lamb of God. He's the one that took away our sins. He bore it on the cross. He shed his blood. And so do you want to continue to carry that burden Or do you want to give it to Christ? You know, going to church is not going to take away the burden of your sin. Trying to change is not going to take away the burden of your sin. Imagine carrying a a, a big sack on your back and a man pulls up with a cart and says, hey, do you want to ride? How foolish it would be to jump up in that cart and continue to hold the burden on your back. So let's not talk about some superficial like, oh, I'll try to read my Bible a little more but rather genuine surrender to God, repentance and faith in the precious blood of Jesus. And then for those of you who may not have ever come to Christ, you know, this might be the first time you've heard that God will fully and completely pardon you. But if God's speaking to you and you know that that this is the truth and you hear the, the Lord tugging at you saying, come to me, turn to me, be willing to confess me as Lord and Savior and follow me. If you feel the Lord calling you, I want to urge you to respond. 
The Bible says now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. You might think you can put it off. Maybe you're a young person. You go, oh, I got plenty of time. The hallways of hell are lined with people who thought they had more time. So give your life to Christ while you can. If you need to talk to someone or pray with someone, my email is going to come up. Pastor uh, Tom, you can email me and I'll get back to you, pray with you. Any of our pastors are available. But let's continue to pray for one another and let's ask God to help each one of us to grow in the Lord. And may the Lord bless you. May you be able to rejoice and be glad today that you're a forgiven sinner. God bless you and I look forward to seeing you next week.